Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BB100, Romania, Hungary, and Sweden, 1989-90. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 210, January the 4th, 1990. In this uh, session, Otto Scott and I will continue to, to discuss with uh, Gary Mose his trip into Hungary and Romania, and possibly, if there's time, some aspects of things in Sweden and elsewhere, because you did cover quite a bit of territory on this trip. Would you like to continue, Gary, with your observations about the situation in Romania? Well, perhaps I'll just uh, continue from our last discussion session with some anecdotes. There was one in particular that was very poignant to me. Um, when I was in Austria at the United Nations Refugee Center, I was told about a young boy who was staying at the center. I didn't meet him on my trip uh, to Romania, but I was told about him, a 16-year-old boy who uh, had escaped from Romania with his father. Father and son had decided to make a break. Father was desperate for employment and uh, was unable to support his family, so I was trying to get to the West to get a job and to uh, be able to send money back to his family, wife and a, a younger son who remained behind in Romania. The f they decided to go through the Danube River again as the other couple I mentioned before did, which is a, a favorite way to go. Um, the problem was that the father did not know how to swim. <laughs> That's a pretty good <laughs> So what he decided to do was put an inner tube around him and float across. But as uh, with the other situation, uh, he and the son were discovered as they were crossing the river, and uh, the, the guards were firing on them, and in the chaos, uh, well, the guards shot the inner tube out from the, from the father, and he began to flounder in the river. Uh, eventually uh, recovered himself and got on his back and floated downstream, lost contact with his son. In fact, both of them lost contact with each other. The son managed to get into Hungary and walked for, in fact, all the way to Vienna, which is a, a pretty long trip to be walking. It takes a good day to drive it, and he walked all that way, and eventually was processed and sent to this UN center in Linz. I was told about this story when I uh, was in Austria, and I asked. I was told when I got to Arad, which is where he was from, to see if I could uh, find anything out about the father and and to report what had happened to the son, at least to the mother back there. Well, I was visiting my uh, my good friend and main contact in Arad, and while we were uh, worshiping together, uh, a man and his wife walked in to the house, to the apartment, and uh, I was introduced to the man and his wife, and they started to tell me this man's story, and as it turned out, it was the exact story I had heard about the young man. This was the father. As a matter of fact, uh, he had floated downstream, uh, had finally made it into Yugoslavia, was arrested there, was put in prison in Yugoslavia, and then deported back to Romania. 
well, uh, Romanians who flee and then are sent back, of course, uh, life is very difficult, to say the least. Um, remarkably, uh, he had not been put in prison when he got back. The believers had rallied about him and supported him in prayer. But he feared, of course, uh, he had just come back uh, from Yugoslavia before I got there. They feared what would happen to them. This uh, father did not speak English. And uh, as I say, when he came in, we were worshiping. And when I, I heard his story, of course, I wanted to report to him and his wife what had happened to the son. And uh, through translator, I was able to tell that story. And, and they were greatly relieved. And while we were worshiping, uh, we were about to leave Romania at this point. Uh, my time was up. And uh, what I had done in each house we visited, before we left, we would pray together. And I would read uh, some scripture to try to encourage them. And I had been reading uh, some passage from Ephesians, which I don't remember now. But as I was about to read that to this man, uh, the Spirit of the Lord just spoke to me and, and told me... Uh, and so, almost in so many words, to read Psalm 124 instead. And I did not recall at all what was in Psalm 124, but uh, I turned to it uh, because I, I really felt the Spirit telling me to share this with this family. And as, as I began to read, uh, I was almost shocked about what I read. And the man, although he didn't understand English, uh, apparently the Spirit of the Lord was speaking to him also because he began to sob almost uncontrollably. And this is what Psalm 124 says. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. And remember this man's story about going through the river. Next verse says, The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That was such a powerful word from the Lord that, that I'll never forget in light of this man's circumstances and his story. They both uh, thought the other had died. They, yeah, they had no idea what had happened to the other one. And, and miraculously, both of them had been saved uh, under impossible circumstances. The Lord had brought them to safety. This is a, just an indication of, of how God has dealt with true believers in Romania. He has been their, their shield and, and uh, their stay and their provider in, in every small detail of their lives, no matter what risks they have to take or, if, or feel led to take, uh, no matter how bold they have been in their witness. I know believers who, who just go out in the streetcars and, and take tape recorders and play uh, Christian music or sermons. Uh, there's that kind of boldness and courage in the face of, uh, of the threat of death. Well, there must have been a lot of sympathizers. Yes, and in fact, I've, I found, I think I mentioned this on a previous occasion, I found in many cases people who did not claim to be believers would in fact cooperate with believers and give them protection or, or share whatever food they had with them. And that always astonished me to, to see that happen because to do so means, uh, if you're caught, uh, terrible punishments, fines, imprisonments, uh, beatings, death, 
I always wondered why they would risk all that to help believers, and it became apparent as I contemplated that and saw this phenomenon in operation that uh, in a country where people live in total fear 100% of the time and have no anchors of any kind socially or religiously or economically, um, they're people who are, are searching for some kind of reality and they see in the lives of believers that reality whether they themselves uh, publicly profess themselves to believers they they like to be in the company of of the truth and of reality well, and, and compassion and this is the only place where you see compassion it's in the community of believers belief is not always conscious right in fact, one man like this, uh, my visit in 87, although he claimed not to be a believer when we came, by the time we left, he was, in fact, publicly professing his belief in the Lord. Well, that, I guess, uh, fairly well covers the anecdotes about my trip to Romania. I, I wish I had more time to uh, to spend there. Each trip I've been there, it's been very short almost by necessity uh, you have to connive you have to uh, pay bribes just to be there to exist there you have to account for your all of your time it's very difficult did you pay bribes well you have to pay bribes to uh, the people at the border to exchange less money than they demand you have to pay bribes to hotel clerks in order to get a room you have to pay bribes to accomplish almost anything the official price, in other words, is not the real price. No, certainly not. As a matter of fact, even if you get the real price, uh, they just won't cooperate with you. And they would tell us what the, the price of a hotel room was, and you have to pay in Western money. And if you don't have Western money, you're just up the creek unless you pay a bribe. That was the situation we faced. Two nights we stayed in hotels there. How long did you stay? We were there uh, three ni- two nights and three days. Mm-hmm. How much? How much? Uh, what sort of distances did you travel? Well, it was all in kilometers, and I'm not very good at converting it. But I would just from the time we spent driving, uh, I would say probably covered about uh, 300 miles mm-hmm. from point in to point out. Mm-hmm. And when you left, what sort of interrogation did the customs? Well, that was almost there? worse than when we left or when we came in. Uh, we were going through pretty thoroughly but when we left an interesting thing happened I had my Bible this one that I have with me right now lying on the front seat of the van in the open and a woman customs official was looking through our things I also had some of my textbooks along from Sweden because while we were traveling I was preparing for a test I had to give when I got back Um, but my Bible was laying on top of the textbooks and she picked it up and the strangest thing happened. She picked it up and and seemed to turn, be looking for a certain passage. She thumbed through it until she got to some place in the book of Judges. I was trying to look over her shoulder to see what she was reading, but it was almost as if she was looking for a, a given passage. And she stood there for three or four minutes and simply read out of the book of Judges. <laughs> and I was very curious. My traveling companion whispered to me, Maybe she's been reading the Bible in snatches as they come through the border. And it almost looked that way. Um, 
<coughs> she stayed with it until another guard came out of the building and made a very loud noise and startled her and she quickly closed the Bible and set it back on the seat of the car. And that's all that was said about it. <laughs> How about uh, Sweden? What did you notice on this trip there? Well, uh, my purpose in going to Sweden, uh, I go there about once a year to uh, to teach journalism at the uh, Scandinavian Christian University Nordic College of Journalism. So the, the time that I spend there is taken up in my, my daily chores. I don't have an, an awful lot of time to to be involved in discussions and observations about the, the situation in Sweden, but I think I did observe a few things. So, and perhaps I could discuss two aspects of, of what I saw in Sweden this time. First, uh, the material and economic situation, and then the spiritual situation in Sweden. And I think it's important to talk about Sweden when we talk about what's happening in Eastern Europe, because, uh, as I'll point out later, I think there's a link between Sweden and what is happening in Eastern Europe in general, and the Soviet Union. Uh, in any event, uh, economically and materially, uh, I have the sense every time I go there that uh, that Sweden is moving increasingly toward economic disaster. There are just little indicators uh, from time to time that, that seem to point this out. And one thing that became very obvious on this trip, although I had known about it before, was uh, the growing problem of absenteeism in yeah. in uh, Swedish factories and offices and all places of employment. Uh, Hospitals, no matter where people work. Well, they get paid when they're not there. Well, that's, too, the, that's the, the problem of it, yeah. There are incentives to stay away from work. You can actually, at least for a short term, you can, in many cases, earn more by staying home than you can by working. And people do this regularly. They, they call in sick or just call in and say they're not coming and then go right down to the uh, social benefits office and collect money for every day that they're... I mean, they get not only the full amount of what they would have earned in the place of employment, but uh, there are various other little uh, incentives that their benefits that come. Mm -hmm. Their best plant is the Volvo and the best working conditions, but their absenteeism there is 18%. It's it's a terrible problem. I was told that in in most factories and most places of employment, uh, the company has to hire three or four people for every position that they have open in that factory. And, of course, the employer pays all of what they call the social expenses for all of those three or four employees. So the expenses are tripled and quadrupled, and the social expenses for every position that they have open. And this this is a tremendous financial burden on industry and in uh, Sweden. So uh, you know, there are many small places of employment that just can't afford to operate under these, these conditions because of the, the terrible absenteeism problem. Well, if they don't work, what do they do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, engage in leisure activities. For the like most what? Part. Oh, if it's winter, they ski. Uh-huh. If it's summer, Are they big they, for games and sports? Oh, very much so, yeah. And they, en- they enjoy the, the good life in Sweden. Uh, they don't swim very much in the summertime because the the weather is not conducive to it. But they they party, 
they uh, go on tours. They love to go on vacations. Sometimes they'll go for a month down into uh, southern Europe. Spain is a particular playground of the Swedes. And they is like it a heavy drinking country? Yes, it is, uh, although it's not uh, real visible, the drinking uh, that's done either in private or um, if it's in public, it's very much controlled to and limited to certain places and circumstances. You when they go on holiday, they'll go on a, say, maybe a, a tour boat in the Baltic or or somewhere on some of the big lakes, and then they cut loose. They just go wild. They drink themselves into oblivion. But in Sweden, uh, there there are always two faces. There's the public one and the private ones, and they they control very much the activities in each of these public and private spheres. You mentioned before that the Amsterdam Sweden run is a drug run, so they're heavy in drugs. That's what I understand. Yeah, I have no personal. Uh, Were there hippies in sight? Um, yeah, but, well. <laughs> Almost everyone in Sweden, in fact, in Northern Europe, uh, through much of Europe, uh, the the punk fashions and, uh, and grooming style and lifestyle has just swept all through Europe. So you see this everywhere. It's particularly evident in Sweden. Uh, I wouldn't call you know what we know from the 60s as the, the hippie image. Uh, I don't see too often, but it's it's more the punk image. <coughs> Punk image, you mean multi, multi-colored hair, yeah, crazy hair, his yes. hairstyles, uh, kind of thing we saw, bizarre yeah. clothing, black. Yeah. Those were in very young people here and in Britain, but it is it middle-aged people? It's, yeah, it seeps into the the popular culture, and you can see that happening, happening in this country too. <clears throat> Um, the other uh, one of the other indicators of uh, economic problems. Uh, I was told that not long before I got there that the government had instituted a new forced savings program. Forced savings. Yeah. That means withholding, doesn't it? <laughs> that looks in, very in much in like your a name. <laughs> in, in, in any other words, that looks like another tax. And uh, if I remember right, it was uh, something like two to three percent. Is withheld. Uh, the income was is withheld and put into and a put savings into, account in uh, your name. Can you draw it out? No, you cannot. Uh, there will be a, sort of like a savings bond arrangement. Well, Hitler did there that. There will be a maturity date, supposedly, but everyone was telling me, you know, where are they going to get the money to pay us back with? It looked like a desperation move. Hitler did that. Yes. And uh, presumably it was uh, to purchase bonds, uh, government mm-hmm. bonds. Well, this, by another name, this is what this is. And is this set aside for the for purchase of government paper of some sort? I'm not sure what the purpose, uh, no. what what the use is for general government expenses. I believe, and of course, the expenses are extremely high in the welfare state. We have a voluntary step towards that in the IRAs, I think. The IRAs. Well, of course, technically, the uh, theoretically, I, the our income tax is voluntary. <laughs> well, I had to laugh when I heard about this forced savings program. In fact, many Swedes were laughing about it too, laughing through their tears, and they knew it was just another tax, and no matter what the government was calling it. And and in fact, it's it's a hardship to them. They're, the average uh, middle-income family, in fact, everybody is a middle-income family in Sweden. 
that's all leveled out to a very low level. Um, many people are uh, having a terrible struggle making ends meet, just maintaining their households. And, Husbands and wives. Uh, almost, almost universally, there's at least two wage earners in the household, and uh, that, of course, has terrible implications for family life, uh, for the, for the upbringing of children. All of the children go through the daycare centers, which are operated by the socialists. Well, there's uh, another aspect to it which you seldom hear about, and that is that when women enter the workforce uh, here and in Sweden and everywhere else, all wages are depressed because the sure. number of workers are doubled. Yeah. So that means that lower income per job. And maternity leaves add heavily to the cost of employment. And, and those are very important in Sweden, not only yes. maternity leaves, but also for fathers. Fathers also get the same benefit. Paternity leaves. Yeah, paternity <laughs> leaves. Paternity yeah. So leaves. you have, you know, any time a child is born, you have both you mother and father out of rush. Yes. <laughs> Uh, this is a cherished new benefit of the welfare state there, but it, the costs, are again, are astronomical. And you can both get up at night. <laughs> Another indicator is the black market in Sweden, and there is a thriving black market. In fact, I would dare say that it's the black market that's keeping Sweden's economy afloat. Um, capitalism is very much alive and well in Sweden, but it's... All the, on the black market. Uh, the Italian economists that I talk to about it call it the free market. Well, yeah, that's that's what it is, and, mm -hmm. and it, it's the only thing that is a free market in Sweden. Everybody knows about it. Uh, everybody operates in. Not everybody. There are a few conscientious Christian believers who who have come to the conclusion that it's uh, it's unethical, it's wrong, sinful to to deal in black, and uh, and they have a very difficult time. This friend that traveled with me to Romania had a horseshoeing business. And there are a lot of horses in Sweden, and he told me if he had been willing to operate in the black market, he could earn a very fine living, as all other horseshoers do, he told me. But he was not willing to do so. And as, a, as a result, had to give up his business. And he's now working in one of these factories where the absenteeism is so high. He's working a lot there because there's always room for people who want to work overtime. Well, and he's not making ends meet even then. But uh, the black market is, is very much uh, what's keeping the economy alive there. One commentator said, in fact, someone who escaped from the Soviet Union, that in earlier years before World War II, because the old Christian work ethic was still strong among the peasants, mm -hmm. at that time the family garden plots produced 52% of the agricultural products. And one of their problems now is that the grandchildren of those people no longer have the same work ethic. And as a result, the estimates by some that maybe 20 to 24% of the agricultural products are from the family garden plots are highly inflated that what people do is to go out to the collective and steal it and sell it on the black market. Same, so that, same thing in the Soviet, I'm sure. Yes, this is from the Soviet Union. Oh, it's from the Soviet Union. Yes, so uh, it is a free market, but after a time the free market in the form of a black market dies because the people are destroyed. Well, yes, you have also in the free market 
certain amount of criminal and corrupt activity mm-hmm. where the goods come from in the first place, with the officials being paid off yeah. and looking the other way. It has a uh, it has a, a corrupting effect yes. when you have two systems in a country. Mm-hmm. Your mm-hmm. friend is right about that. Yeah. And that's exactly what you have in Sweden. You have two economies running parallel. One is a disaster, an economic disaster, and the other one is what's keeping the country afloat. Um, it's almost a joke there. People have little, what look sort of like piggy banks uh, on their shelves, and they're black-colored, and it says, sort the ping on them, which means black money, and this is where they... They Save. keep their household cash, and, and, and much of, of uh, economic activity is done on a cash basis there. People are you know, doing work no on record. the side, no records, and of course no taxes paid on it. That's, that's, illegal. Came out. that's illegal here, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it's illegal yes. there too, and it really came out just very recently when the government in Sweden uh, attempted to register pleasure boats. Apparently up till this time pleasure boats have not been registered almost uh, to an item the pleasure boats have been bought apparently with black money and uh, when uh, this registration proposal came up that meant that all these boats were going to be identified and uh, it would become apparent that people had more money than they were reporting on their income taxes. So they have to explain how they got the boat. Right, and there was a wide outcry and strong resistance. I I didn't hear what the outcome of that was, but it was uh, something that was going to reveal the extent of the black market in Sweden, and there was resistance to it. Well, of course, I did notice this in the closing period of World War II, and that is that anyone who had a boat could stay alive even when the economy collapsed, because you could move goods around. And, of course, Sweden uh, is a maritime nation. That's true. Didn't think about that, but that's... And they could go to Norway, they could go to Finland, they could go to Germany, they could go to Denmark and bring goods in and out. Mm-hmm. It would be a very important thing to have. Well, of course, there is some... Uh, talk that we are going to go to a new kind of currency in order to flush out all the unreported money what which about people the, are hoarding in bills. What about the euro dollars? We've got more money outside the country yes. than there is in. And you mean to tell me that if the Bank of England sends over $10 million in old currency that they're going to have to explain where they got it? No, only you and I. Only us, yes. 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 We and Yes, yes, and the same is true of your people that supposedly they are going to go after, your uh, criminal syndicates. Yes. They are able to take care of laundering their money. They send it through the banks. Yes. But if you have saved money all these years, if you put aside, let's say, 5% of your income, which is not too great a strain for, say, the last 20 years, and you have X dollars and hundred dollar bills, then what? Is the government going to make assumptions? If you uh, put five thousand or more cash in a bank account, it is reported. Yes, I know. Yes. Maybe I could uh, just move on to uh, some observations about spiritual life in Sweden. 
there are two revivals, I think, going on in Sweden, and one is a revival of paganism, and the other is a revival of Christianity. First, uh, with regard to paganism, and I mean abject paganism from pre-Christian days, there's a... Uh, Wotan and all that? Oh, gnomes and trolls and, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the woods, spirits of the woods. These kind of environmentalists. Well, there they take it very seriously. Uh, I noticed particularly in uh, children's literature and, and uh, children's television programming, these themes are cropping up constantly, uh, and in books and in uh, and in television programs. Like our nature programs. Yeah, we see much of it the same. In fact, uh, it's happening all over Europe. I was told by my students that this is very much happening all over Europe, uh, a revival of uh, animism. In fact, when I was in Hungary, I stayed in a hotel one night and tuned in Radio Moscow, and they were having a program on Radio Moscow on the same subject. Well, here in this country, a major Presbyterian seminary, had a witch address the student body, I believe in chapel. So this is the kind of thing that's happening the world over, an aggressive uh, revival of paganism sponsored from uh, high places. By the governments. Yes, in some instances. Some scholars have held that uh, Scandinavia and Iceland were only superficially Christianized, that it did not penetrate deeply into the culture. As a matter of fact, the great Swedish migration to the United States, which brought one out of seven Swedes to this country, has had an important influence on Sweden in that the Swedes who came here uh, were uh, converts very quickly and became intensely devout and in many instances uh, carried the faith back to Sweden on their visits and have been an aggressive force over the years in uh, their influence on Sweden. So a couple of other manifestations of this uh, paganism uh, I think you see it uh, in the animal rights movement which is yes which is growing very strong there the, the philosophical the leader of, of this, I guess, is the uh, children's author, Astrid Lindgren. She has been very outspoken in uh, promoting legislation for animal rights, and they have very stringent laws there now. Pigs in barns have to have so many square feet to roam around in. And, oh, really? And dairy cows, if you can believe this, have to be let out of the barn in the wintertime so they can have fresh air to breathe, which every farmer knows is a stupid thing to do. On the other hand, uh, horses who survive quite well outside in the wintertime have to be given shelter in the wintertime. <laughs> so you have bureaucrats telling farmers uh, you know, what the best way uh, to engage in animal husbandry is, well, all they, in the name of animal rights. They still wear shoes and <laughs> use briefcases, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the animals will be very soon here. <laughs> So uh, that's that's one manifestation of it, and of course that whole idea is being exported outside of Sweden, coming into this country as well. I think this revival of, uh, of spiritism, of animism, of paganism, is 
is evident in many other places besides Sweden. In this country, probably you see it in the New Age movement, uh, revival of uh, old pagan ideas. What about Christianity? Uh, well, I, I, like I say, that's the other aspect of revival. Before I get into that, though, maybe just observe that along with the uh, the grim economic situation, this the spirit of paganism, which is creeping rapidly through and almost pervading Swedish society is producing a very sour spirit, a spirit of bitterness and sadness. You can you can sense it. What are they worried about? That's you can't put your finger on it. It's a spirit of bitterness. It's like I say, partly it's their economic situation, but I really believe it's a spiritual oppression. There's just a prevailing sadness among the Swedish people. No, uh, they don't laugh. They don't uh, smile. Yeah, like that. Well, of course, some well, do, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that's a, a good way to describe the overall aspect of the Swedish people. When you, when you meet them walking down the street, there's there's a there's a gray look on their face, uh, a depression, and it's showing up in uh, very high suicide rates and, and in the alcoholism that I mentioned earlier. In his very famous account of the conversion of England, the Venerable Bede cited that as a reason why the uh, king uh, decided in favor of Christianity because uh, although he didn't understand the doctrine he didn't know much about uh, what Christianity represented the thing that told with him heavily was the fact that there was a darkness about paganism whereas mm -hmm. Christianity seemed to bring in warmth and light and hope now that's exactly opposite the humanist myth. Of course. Exactly, yeah. Exact opposite. Yes. Well, the Venerable Bede is worth reading on that because it's a very telling account. And simply on that basis, the king allowed the Christians to propagate the faith and himself was ready to receive it. That's very interesting because Sweden, you know, was the first country to break the pornography barrier. Yes, and that was supposed to bring back happy paganism, which which never existed, and everyone was supposed to, but because of this license, feel better. Mm -hmm. And the sexual revolution began there. Yes, but even the pornography, and I've seen very little of it there, but you, you can't escape it. You go into the stores, and the magazines are there in front of your eyes to see. It has a a lifeless quality about it. It's very strange. Well, it's always <laughs> been a down thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in contrast to that, and this, this pervading sadness and darkness that you see in much of Swedish society, as you were saying uh, about the Venerable Bede's uh, observations, it's in the uh, the spiritual community of Christians that uh, you see joy and light, and, and it's just remarkable. Um, Christians that I know in Sweden are some of the most joyful, um, delightful people that I've ever met anywhere. Um, and there is a revival of that spirit within Sweden. Along with the uh, revival of paganism, there is a Christian revival. It's yeah. mostly centered in uh, the charismatic movement, in house churches, or in what I might call parachurch uh, activities and organizations 
and it's these groups that are are being severely uh, criticized and in some cases even persecuted one of the most active uh, group of believers a charismatic group in Stockholm area by the name of uh, the word of life has uh, been a forerunner in establishing Christian education in Sweden and while I was there the leader was on trial criminal trial for uh, his operation of a Christian school what was the charge? He wasn't allowed to operate it. You mean a Christian school is illegal? Well, they have Christian schools there, but they have to be registered. In fact, they're, in fact, they're supported by tax dollars in some cases. Where's they're the regulated Lutheran? and controlled, but this was a... Is, is Sweden officially Lutheran? Yes. That's the established church. Right. Do the unestablished churches have a right to operate? Um... That's up subject to debate. In fact, the university that I that I uh, am affiliated with there is a private institution, a private Christian institution, and is the center for um, a house church. They recently had, to, well, a couple of years ago now, had to fight off uh, a legal action. The charge was that because they were not state sanctioned, they did not have a, a right to operate. As the a church. charge was filed with the Consumer Affairs Ombudsman, um, that was kind of a strange route, but the reasoning was that because the school was holding itself out on the market as a university, um, that that was false advertising because universities have to be state-sponsored, state-operated. You pointed out in an article some time back that because the uh, Church of Sweden is a state church, everyone in the community has a right to vote in church elections, which yeah. means that church boards are usually Marxist-controlled. And this is the objection to a free church, a non-state church. It is outside the control of the people. It is controlled by the believers. Right. When the free churches were established in Sweden, there was major, major controversy for many, many years, and and that spirit kind of lingers on. Although free churches are recognized now, uh, within some of the established free churches, the well-established free churches, you have this uh, mentality that unless you're not your activity now, your spiritual activity, your Christian activity, your Bible study or whatever, is sanctioned by the church that you're somehow uh, illegal. Yes. When we began a little English-speaking Bible study while we lived there, and most of the members uh, were a member of a, a large uh, Pentecostal church, which is one of the free churches, the largest free church in Sweden. And uh, the members of the Bible study group were hounded. They were denounced from the pulpit. This group was a by the state subversive. Church. No, by the free church, the, the established free church. There's a not an officially established free church, but one that has become an establishment church. Uh, they pick up the statist mentality. Yeah, they do. It's all the way through. No doubt about it. That's why I say the the centers of of real spiritual development and the true preaching of the word and Christian action are are in the new breakaway groups, which are primarily parachurch or house church charismatic groups and within them you have just a wonderful spirit of worship uh, of determination to reclaim culture 
one of the favorite songs of uh, the students that I taught at the Nordic College of Journalism, almost all of whom are charismatic students. And it goes like this. For the Lord is marching on, and his army is ever strong, and his glory shall be seen upon the land. Raise the anthem, sing the victory song. Praise the Lord for the victory won. No weapon formed against us shall stand. We are marching in Messiah's land, keys of victory in his mighty hand. Let us march on to take the promised land. For the captain of the host is Jesus. We are following in his footsteps. No foe can stand against us in the fray. And this is the attitude which these uh, vibrant believers are taking. They're aggressive. They're taking no guff, even in dissenting from the collective um, mentality, collective position in Sweden, which is next thing to treason. Could you give us a, could you make a guess on the percentage? Very small at this point. Five percent, ten percent? Probably less than that. Less than five? Two percent? Probably along that line. Mm -hmm. Well, when Roland Hansford wrote his remarkable book on Sweden entitled The New Totalitarians, 1971 and 2. He said that, and I'm quoting, Professor Alvar Nelson, a government legal expert, says that our aim is to remove all traces of church morality from legislation, unquote. He also says that the uh, idea of urban redevelopment has been used to demolish churches and in particular as an international organization the Catholic Church has been obliterated in many areas uh, systematically and uh, this has been a deliberate policy moreover he says that the uh, goal is, in effect, uh, in their legal procedures, is to make the judiciary appear infallible. And in Sweden's case, the judiciary really is the bureaucracy. Yes. There is a court system, you know, a regular court system as we understand it, but, but the real decisions are made uh, within the various uh, quasi-judicial um, segments of the bureaucracy and in many cases their decisions are not appealable, they're irreversible what the bureaucracy says is it what is the basis of Swedish law I mean we know the uh, we know that Roman law and canon law Christian law was the basis for common law and others in the west and we know the Napoleonic Code in Italy, which resembles in France, of course, and so forth. We know the German Code pretty well. But what about the Scandinavian Code? What's that based on? I can't really answer that authoritatively, although if I recall from my reading of uh, the book you just cited, The New Totalitarians, um, the bulk of Swedish law, at least the effective Swedish law, has... Uh, is administrative law. It was, began to be developed um, Would you call it under the monarchy. Socialism? Oh, very clearly, yeah. Sweden was socialist before the word was even invented, I think. The Swedish mentality goes back almost to medieval times uh, where there was Sharing collective, everything. collective um, 
industry it's and agriculture society. Yeah, it has been for a moment. One American Scandinavian pastor told me that in the northern plains states where the Swedish communities are very strong and an area that is truly a Bible belt, the one point of problem that he has is that his people are socialistic because well, this has deep roots. That's Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, the, Dakotas. the Dakotas. That's where they settled, and and, yes. and they're they've always sent some bizarre people to Washington. Mm-hmm. The uh, Nordic College of Journalism, I think, is uh, becoming more and more a strategic uh, center in. Uh, in the face of both of these revivals, particularly in the Christian revival. And as things deteriorate in Sweden, um, this place is going to be more and more important. And I might add, as Eastern Europe and and some parts of the Soviet Union itself um, begin to experience new freedoms, and I'm thinking particularly of the Baltic states and the Soviet Union, as they begin to resist pressure from Moscow and establish their own directions, which they are doing, this school is going to be vital when, as the free, as the press becomes freer in Eastern Europe and in the Baltic states, uh, there's going to be a great need for journalists trained uh, to be um, free thinkers, and I don't like to use that term, but free from the uh, the communist uh, training, and this is the only place where you're going to find it. So I think Sweden is is an important with regard to Eastern Europe in that regard, but also in many other ways. Uh, if we can turn uh, maybe to yes. just an analysis of what's happening in uh, Eastern Europe in general, uh, I mentioned earlier that I think uh, it's appropriate to talk about what's happening in Eastern Europe in connection with what's happening in Sweden, because as totalitarian Stalinist communism is dying, which it clearly is in Eastern Europe and to some extent in the Soviet Union, we can rejoice, of course, at the freedoms which come along with that. What we've got to consider in our rejoicing is not so much where where they're coming from, but where are they going. Yes. And these, all of these states are looking for a new model to operate their societies. They're not ready to move completely into free market capitalism yet well, because they've become slaves to uh, the socialist system. So what, you know, they cherish freedom. They're looking for a way to be free and still have a socialistic system. And what that is is the, uh, is the social democracy model. And Sweden is and has been in the vanguard of that uh, since the whole idea ever arose. In fact, there are overt references to the Swedish model, particularly in Hungary. And this does not uh, bode well for the future, because as I've described it, uh, doing its... uh, uh, working to the detriment of Sweden, which has been a strong economy, you can imagine what's going to happen to these economies that are already in shambles, trying to adopt a Swedish model. Well, I can only see disaster. It's the model that we have. Yeah, well, you, we can all see what's happening in this. We we have a welfare state. Who's kidding who? This is not a capitalist country. Of course not. Sweden got their model in part from us and from progressive education to 
supplant uh, a terroristic totalitarianism with an educational one, a total control of the minds of the people, so that Dewey's area of great success has been Sweden. Well, the environmental movement is going to lock up American industry just as thoroughly as Stalin did. Mm -hmm. They don't have to go to Sweden. They can just look at us. We will send socialists over there in the name of liberals Mm -hmm. to tell them how to do it. Uh, Uh, Leaving the the Swedish theme for a minute, um, discussing just in general what's happening in Eastern Europe. I think one of the best analyses that I've come across about what is happening is an analysis that was made in terms of a prediction. This analysis, and I'd like to, in the short time that we have, read some excerpts from a book called New Lies for Old, which I'm fond of citing. And, uh, by written, Golitsyn. Written by Golitsyn, who was a uh, colonel in the KGB, specialist in uh, counterintelligence. He wrote this book uh, starting way back in the 60s already. It was not published until 1984, but most of it was actually written um, before Brezhnev died. And so the predictions he was making about... Well, the book is about the Soviet bloc, or the, the international communist bloc's strategic disinformation program. And he, and in his last, uh, the last part of the book, he predicted about what would happen in what he called the final phase of the strategic disinformation program. And he predicted uh, almost to the detail exactly what is happening now. And this was, I say, done before Brezhnev even died, before there was any sign of liberalization. He uh, he, he points out uh, that the that the whole idea uh, was experimented with in Czechoslovakia back in '68. What we've come to know uh, know as the Prague Spring which he says was a uh, was a false and deceptive action that was a disinformation operation and that may be a little hard to swallow unless you read the whole book in which he, he documents and details it to a, a very uh, extensive uh, extent uh, also uh, the Polish solidarity movement he claims was a, similarly a, a disinformation operation and just if I could just read a few excerpts sure, from his final phrase please. here because it's, it's almost uncanny. <laughs> uncanny. As the Prague Spring of 1968, as with the Prague Spring of 1968, the motives for the Polish renewal, in quotes, were a combination of the internal and external. Internally, it was designed to broaden the political base of the Communist Party in the trade unions and to convert the narrow elitist dictatorship of the party into a Leninist dictatorship of the whole. Working of the whole working class that would revitalize the Polish political and economic system. The renewal followed the lines of Lenin's speech to the Comintern Congress in July 1921, quoting Lenin now, I'm, Our only strategy at present is to become stronger and therefore wiser, more reasonable, more opportunistic. The more opportunistic, the sooner will you assemble again the masses around you. When you have won over the masses by our, when we have run, won over the masses by our reasonable approach, we shall then apply offensive tactics in the strictest sense of the word. Polish trade unions, before the renewal, were suffering from the stigma of party control. In an attempt to apply Leninist 
principles by creating a new trade union organization through governmental action uh, to have attempted that would have uh, failed to remove the stigma. The new organization had to appear to have been set up from below. Its independence had to be established by carefully calculated and controlled confrontation with the government. The origin of the solidarity movement in a shipyard bearing Lenin's name, the singing of the Internationale, to use the old slogan, the use of the old slogan, uh, Workers of the World Unite, by solidarity members, and the constant presence of Lenin's portrait are all consistent with concealed party guidance of the organization. Without that guidance and help, the discipline of solidarity and its record of successful negotiation with the Polish government would have been impossible. The party's concealed influence in the Catholic, Polish Catholic Church ensured that the church would act as a force for moderation and compromise between solidarity and the government. Um, he goes on to describe the creation of coalition government in Poland. Coalition government in Poland would in fact be totalitarianism under a new deceptive and more dangerous guise. Accepted as a spontaneous emergence of a new form of multi-party semi-democratic regime, it would serve to undermine resistance to communism inside and outside the bloc. The need for massive defense expenditure would increasingly be questioned in the West, which is happening exactly right now. New possibilities would arise for splitting Western Europe away from the United States, of neutralizing Germany, and destroying NATO. And these are exactly the objectives of the present situation. With North American influence in Latin America also undermined, the stage would be set for achieving actual revolutionary changes in the Western world through spurious changes in the communist system. Well, that's a very well, telling <laughs> statement. That just about covers it, I'd say. You know, the last great supporter of the Soviet communist system and party is in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Here's some more uh, from his prediction. If in a reasonable time liberalization can be successfully achieved in Poland and elsewhere, remember this is predicted, and now that liberalization has been achieved, it will serve to revitalize the communist regime's concern. The activities of the false opposition will further confuse and undermine the genuine opposition in the communist world. Externally, the role of dissidents will be to persuade the West that the liberalization is spontaneous and not controlled. Liberalization will create conditions for establishing solidarity between trade unions and intellectuals in the communist and non-communist world. In time, such alliances will generate new forms of pressure against Western militarism, racism, and the military-industrial complex. And in favor of disarmament, the kind of structural changes in the West predicted in Sakharov's writings. And that, of course, in Sakharov's writings, he's referring there to the whole theme of convergence, East-West convergence, which is well, exactly what's that. taking place. We right heard now. that New Year's Day mm -hmm. well, from Mr. Bush and Mr. Yeah. Uh, Gorbachev. Yeah. This is how we're going to come uh, together. Admitted openly now that uh, the whole thrust of the liberalization is to create the common European homeland, which is the catchphrase right now. And the only problem with that is that we're going to be excluded. <laughs> well, again, it's not here to, to isolate the United States. Yes. So I think the 90s are going, definitely going to be the decade of Europe, and there's going to be some extremely interesting and dangerous things taking place there.
thought. The best thing that I've gotten out of your dissertation is that there is a Christian underground in all these areas, yes, which may interfere with this particular plot. And I believe strongly that it will. That's very good. Yes. They've counted God out, and God is in the process of counting them out. <laughs> well said. God never allows himself to be counted out. Right. Well, that's uh, been a very telling analysis, Gary. I would recommend people picking up this book. I've only scratched the surface, in this, even in this final chapter, the details. Who's the publisher? Published by Dodd Mead and Company. What year? 1984. Called New Lies for Old. Well, we have about a minute left. Any final statement on the part of either of you? Well, again, I'd just like to encourage Western church and Western believers to to consider and to be in prayer about the opportunities yes. in Eastern Europe. And I mean opportunities. There are opportunities there which have never existed before. And if we don't seize them, somebody else will. In fact, other people are. In Hungary, for example, the occult is on the rise. Cults are moving in. Pornography is moving in. When the demon of communism is uh, cast out of the house in Hungary, uh, that demon is going to roam around, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, until it can't find any other place to light and it will come back to the empty house with seven other demons who are worse than uh, he was. And the situation for the, the house will be much worse in the end. So if Christians do not seize the opportunity, we have only ourselves to blame. Yes. Well, well let's not load any guilt on the Christians. We get enough of it as it is. Not guilt, it's just an opportunity. And we must take it. Well, thank you very, very much, Gary, and thank you all for listening, and do be in prayer concerning these things of which Gary spoke. Good night, and God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library digitized by Christ, rules, dot com.